BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. All righty. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we are live, and we're going to be doing a response to some articles written about Christian nationalism from Big Eva herself, and that is these are articles from Josh Bice, Virgil Walker, and Peter Schreiner, I think was his name, uh, of the Gospel Coalition. The first two were of G3 Ministries, this latter one was the Gospel Coalition. And you got some people at G3 just kind of clowning themselves, they've kind of become the butt of several memes, and we're definitely here for that, but. We're going to engage more with the uh, articles all as a whole because I feel like it'd be better to do it all in one uh, rather than three separate videos addressing three separate articles. So that's the uh, goal for this live stream. So we're going to be efficient in covering three in one. So that's the plan for tonight. So uh, and I would like to remind you uh, Live chat is always welcomed. Hitting the like button is especially welcome. And Anthony is joining me here today. And just as full disclosure, how many of the articles have you read? Uh, the Virgil Walker one, yes. The Gospel Coalition, the other, and the other one I might have read through, but I'm not sure I retained a whole lot from the first G3 article. Okay, just full disclosure. I read the first sentence of the Virgil Walker article, had a problem with it. I read the Josh Bice article already the other day and sent out a post about it. And I characterized it as dishonest. And I didn't think that he was serious about engaging this topic. That's how I feel about the Josh Bice article and G3 in general these days. I don't. And we're going to talk about one line in particular in the Josh Bice article that, you know, they really don't have a good precedent to stand on with the art, with the people that they're raising up as here as faithfully participating in the public sphere. So that that drove me nuts. And the first sentence of the Virgil Walker article, which is the only sentence I've read, but I had a major issue with. And it's not, you know, he said some things that Christians shouldn't say. Or at least he said one thing that Christians shouldn't say. And then the Gospel Coalition article I've read the least of. And it does, but I skimmed it enough to see, okay, you really go there. You go full blue and on or something like that. Like that's that's the vibe that I'm getting from that article. I haven't read it fully. Um, 
K Pope says, uh, Joel Webin did a good video on where he stands on Christian nationalism. He does a lot of good videos on this topic. I have not watched them all yet because yeah. I've been behind uh, on watching things. But yeah, definitely send live chat. We'll love to interact uh, with you because we don't do too many uh, live streams on the Gospel Coalition for starters and certainly not on G3. This is the only second time I've talked about G3. Uh just because they're usually one of the good guys. And that's frustrating on this issue because they're either one of the good guys or they're absent in the fight. That's my experience with G3 or my observation of G3, which I'll talk about when we get to their articles. But I do want to uh, let everyone know Evangelical Dark Web, uh, Christian News Gathering Commentary Ministry. You can support us over at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. This is our Patreon-like system. Uh, that gives you more access to more content. There's a, you know, there's content behind a paywall and stuff. And one of the things that I did recently was I did an ask me anything type of article. And that way, if you're a paid subscriber, we're going to do an ask me anything stream one of these days. And, you know, if you're a paid subscriber supporting Evangelical Dark Web, one of the benefits is you get to ask us anything and we'll answer it when we do that stream. Uh, which should be a fun time. You will get prioritized. Live chat will always be accepted, though. Uh, so definitely hit the like button, and live chat is always welcomed. Uh, I want to read this one. Joel Webb and Braggs, his new book is getting positive reviews from Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk. Red I mean, flag. I'm not entirely sure about that because book endorsements are book endorsements. It's kind of like political endorsements. You don't even meet the candidate. You already have a prepared statement. The reason why Ben Shapiro would endorse this book is because it's not going to be a bestseller. And he can like sustain some sort of conservative credentials and it's not going to be a bestseller. It's not threatening him. Uh, I mean, Kirk will, endorse, Kirk will endorse anything. Let's just be honest. Uh, Charlie Kirk is a massive grifter. So, yes. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's just hop on into our first article. Let me uh, pull it up. Uh, the Different Shades of Christian Nationalism by Josh Bice. And we talked about Josh Bice, G3, and Christian Nationalism and how they're just, you know, really failing at it. This is their article to engage seriously on the topic, and I don't think this is a serious article. Um, perhaps you're a Christian who lives in America and you – You've been concerned with the direction our, of our nation over the last several years. Okay, I'm going to max zoom in on that so the audience can read it. Uh, concerned, uh, that concerned is not unmerited. We have watched the nation legalize homosexuality, embrace critical race theory and intersectionality, and now we're currently debating the proper age for butchering children for sex change procedures. Don't worry, Christian. Don't much worry, better Christian, start than Virgil Walker's article. Christian nationalism is the real problem. Yes. Um, if you have a problem with legalized grooming of children by Drag Queen Story Hour at your local community library, the insistence that Christians embrace the latest alphabet soup of pronouns and homosexual titles, and you disagree with the degradation of our sense of morality as a nation, what's the answer? For some, it's Christian nationalism. So what is Christian nationalism? And should we as Christians embrace this movement as to answer 
the decline of our great nation. In order to deal with this issue, I will attempt to provide some basic definitions and move to a stated position by way of conclusion. Okay. What is nationalism? According to Merriam Webster, the term nationalism refers to loyalty and devotion to a nation, especially in a, a sense of national con consciousness, exalting one nation above all others, and proclaiming primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interest as opposed to those of other nations or supranational supranational groups. While it's similar, while this is similar to patriotism, it's distinct in that it elevates one nation above all others. It would be good to avoid using these terms interchangeably, and I disagree with that. There's our first disagreement there. I mean, the line between nationalism and patriotism is very thin. And again, when your mantra for foreign policy or, or trade policy is America first, you are inherently putting your country's interest above other countries' right. interests. So on one hand, we have to question, well, in what context is this true? In what context do does nationalism exalt its own nation above other nations? I mean, really. And you're saying in its own policy that America first is clearly the example of that. I mean, the problem with patriotism, so to speak, and based on his distinction between patriotism and nationalism, not my own, is that yeah, we fought how many wars for patriotism in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, this whole war on terror and helping out Ukraine, that's patriotism because now we're not exalting our own interest above all other nations. Right. Interest. And and I mean, that, those wars are criticized as imperialist, but they're literally the exact opposite of imperialism. Imperialism is when you impose your culture on someone else and benefit, you know, the nation benefits at the expense of the action like you know we're conquering the philippines or uh you know from the spanish and, or manifest destiny those benefit the nation there's been like when you were building roads in afghanistan and giving spreading democracy we're not benefiting america and you know that was a lie you know spread you know for several decades in american politics that democracy makes a nation friendly towards us even though we have a long history in Middle Eastern politics in which dictatorships were actually most friendly towards us. Uh, what was it? The Egyptian guy that was overthrown, uh, Mubarak. And then obviously the Shahs of Iran uh, were very friendly towards U.S. interest. So, and they weren't overthrown for freedom. They were overthrown because they weren't Islamic enough. And that's, that's the truth about the uh, 1979 Iranian revolution. That's also the truth about the is uh, Muslim Brotherhood Revolution, Arab Spring in Egypt in 2011, or is it 2012 at this point? Over 10 years ago. But his, so, his definition falls into that trap of, I mean, again, to refer to uh, Vedi Bakum's definition, that he emphasizes nationalism as the alternative to either globalism or probably like a local or tribalism, which again, you know, that's Vedi the. Uh, well, nat nationalism versus globalism versus tribalisms. The how uh, Doug Wilson frames this debate. Yes, that's how Doug Wilson, Stephen, and then Wolf Joel Webin also frames the debate. So, but he is Wolf does as well. Yes, that's more or less Stephen Wolf's position: is that you need the nationalism to combat globalism because you have a citizenry of not nowheres, as he calls them, basically global citizens or citizens of no country. So, uh, in order to combat that, you need people that take up a 
particular nation's interest. The other thing that nationalism in, you know, when he talks about not using the terms interchangeably, the other thing that nationalism stands distinct from his definition of patriotism is that nationalism doesn't celebrate multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is this, uh, I would define multiculturalism as believing that all cultures are equal or have values to bring to the table. And that's simply not true. I don't think the Aztec culture had much to bring to the table as opposed to the Spaniards who conquered them. We've all seen that meme, hopefully, of the, you know, the, the dude ripping the heart out of the corpse and saying, oh, look, the far right as the conquistadors approach. Like, the Aztecs didn't really have much to bring to the table there. They're an evil culture. And the world is better off without that culture existing. And the same could be said of a lot of cultures like the Caribs and stuff like that. So multiculturalism as a premise or, you know, should also be rejected because, first of all, this is America's culture. This is America. We should celebrate our own culture also above the culture of other nations because this is America. And it's not wrong to celebrate your own culture. And again, not all cultures are equal because not all cultures have the same values and not all values are equal. Obviously, we as Christians should know this. So there's a huge uh, multiculturalism premise undergirding. I don't know if uh, Josh Bice is making the connection here, but again, multiculturalism is how we it was one of the you know buzzwords that led us to wokeness. But as you'll see, he uses James Lindsay tactics in this article uh, to argue that we're the ones employing woke tactics, even though he just, you know, implicitly employed and invoked multiculturalism as a good thing. Uh, any last words before I move on? Mm-hmm. In similar way, in, in a similar way, Encyclopedia Britannica provides the following definition. Nationalism is an ideology that emphasizes loyal devotion or allegiance to a nation or nation state and holds that such obligations outweigh other individual interest or individual or group interest. I mean, I guess just repeat back the prior conversation. Would you want to have a leader, an ambassador of your people who is not a nationalist by that definition? You want a globalist? You want someone that's going to put other people's nations above your own nation because that's or the problem. With the better form. yet, themselves. They just they're there to enrich themselves. So, uh, and then within the current movement, we have a movement that uses the, a compound term. All I, I got to pause right there because all nationalism is compound. It's always compound depending on what the nation is. Anyway, um, a compound term, Christian nationalism, that's being employed by all sorts of different groups, which will necessitate intentional differentiation and specificity of meaning. While it's good to support sovereign national identity, closed borders, and capitalism, that's not exactly how the terms function within the framework of Christian nationalism. I mean, it's certainly a platform. It's certainly on the platform. But even still, again, advocating closed borders, and we're talking, you know, possibly down to zero immigration or near zero immigration. So, yeah, I mean, it's on the platform. Yeah, I mean, 
there there is cultural interest in closed borders and stuff like that and especially since the whole point of the open borders is to uh, demographically terraform america you know using replacement theory and stuff like that which is what they've successfully done in much of the uk uh which is why you know you look at the city of london yeah it's very much not britain anymore so what is christian nationalism this is where the article starts to actually pick up and get a little bit more relevant. Uh, in many ways, it's a complicated question. It's like asking, what does it mean to be Presbyterian? Do you mean PCA, PCUSA, OPC, or other versions such as CREC? To be clear, there are various versions of Christian nationalism being offered up within both political and evangelical circles. It's possible to be a Christian who is proud of your nation in a patriotic way and yet not fall into the category of Christian nationalist. I actually will agree with that. Because there are many Christians out there that don't believe that the government should even enforce the second table of the law. Yeah, you can love your country, you can even vote properly and stuff like that, but if you don't have an end game of enforcing the second table, let alone the first table of the law, then yeah, you're not exactly a Christian nationalist. Any comment on that? No. no uh, I mean, refer back to, you know, patriotism and the weaknesses of patriotism versus nationalism. Uh, with this conversation, we have various terms that are being connected to Christian nationalism, uh, either by necessity of the relationship or by way of an alternative title altogether. Some of the key language includes conservative patriotism, white Christian nationalism, conservative political nationalism, political Protestantism, Christian nationalism, mere Christendom. That last one's a Doug Wilson term. Doug I mean, Wilson's trying to populate or popularize mere Christendom. I think that's a losing endeavor, but let's maybe focus group some of these terms. I think Christian nationalist is the best term here. I mean, conservative. And the second best would be political I mean, protestantism conservative patriotism means nothing because again it goes back to what is a conservative so and i don't i've never even Same seen with conservative political nationalism that means nothing either yeah those two terms i've never even seen them before so i don't know who's using them political protestantism i'm sure is someone's idea that that one's a little bit better mere christendom is what doug wilson's trying to popularize but you know it's kind of like the movie yeah You've seen the Founder movie with uh, who's the uh, lead Ray actor? Mike, Michael Ke Keaton. Michael Keaton. Yeah. So Founder movie with Michael Keaton. At the end of the movie, this is Ray Kroc of the story of McDonald's. Goes to the McDonald's brothers and says, "You can't, you know, we bought the name and all." And he's explaining to the McDonald's brothers why their own product was successful, because he surmised that you know they didn't just give. There's no way they just gave him the tour of how their operation works. So they've probably given all these people tours of how the McDonald's store works, how the fast food chain worked, or not a chain at the time. But no one was ever able to make it work because the name was critical to the success of McDonald's. McDonald's was a good name. And that's what Ray Kroc says in the movie, or Michael Keaton playing Ray Kroc says in the movie. And Christian nationalism is a much better name that people can get behind, not mere Christendom. I like the term, 
but it's not a name people can get behind. We need, uh, we need the uh, complete normies to get on board. I mean, again, if you're going to be politically very, casual, if you are going to be very like, oh, I guess the opposite of disingenuous. If you're actually going to be like genuine with your adjacent titles, I mean, you might have chosen like. I guess MAGA or some form of MAGA slash America first. You might have chosen paleo conservatism. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the most, you know, interchangeable term, I think, with Christian nationalism in a politics space is America first. Because there's so much overlap between the two camps in the Republican Party. Now, electorally speaking, I don't think the Christian nationalist camp has been all that successful. But uh, I don't think that there's no hope to improve that in the future. I think America First has been a lot more successful. But again, uh, people like candidates like Carrie Lake, uh, at the end of the day, I don't think she was that great of a candidate uh, in retrospect. And, you know, she couldn't win cleanly. She lost dirtily. Uh, so I, I think Christian nationalism is a term that people who are politically casual can get behind. I think it's, you know, not theologically eggheaded, so to speak. It's not an ivory tower term. It's a more everyday term that, you know, salt of the earth Americans can get behind if they're both Christian and believe in a national interest. So I think terms are important. And that's why, you know, I, I had a debate with this on Bree and Babe's channel uh, last Saturday. And the point that I brought up was, yeah, and I made this point that mere Christendom is not a term that will sell. And again, pa Christian patriotism. I mean, you're going to run. That won't sell either. That you're going to run. How, how many times have neocons used that? I mean, if you just you know swap the words, not even the ideology, you're going to end up in the same exact situation, and with these people writing their articles against it. So even if you change the name to Christian patriotism, you're just wheel spinning. Uh, and uh, TD says Christ, you put an extra thing to recognize the typo there. Christ is kingism. And I like that. So uh, why doesn't he like Carrie Lake? Uh, she is I, a little socially liberal. That's, I mean. Yeah, she's very socially liberal. I kind of think that a lot of her, you know, a lot of her uh, jive is an act. And like, let's just be honest. I think if she I mean, were, I mean, I think. There's a reason why she was going to drag shows several years ago. And, and I don't well, think she's evolved much on the issue. And she's doing photo ops with uh, Bruce Jenner and all. So, well, I mean, I also think, I mean, you know, not to say being a woman hurts her, but let's just be honest, especially since she's a little bit more on the crass side, that also hurts her versus a man can be a little bit more Trumpian in that regard. So, well, I, I like she didn't win. And she's sticking around and people actually think that she's vice presidential material for Trump, which is a laughable proposition, but I digress. Uh, continuing with the article, for instance, more than 5,000 people assembled in Pennsylvania for the Reawaken America tour back in late 2022, where Donald Trump addressed concerns, uh, concerned attendees regarding the direction of the nation. The 
central feminist or sorry i was reading a chat for a second uh the central message of the event was focused on a reaction to the woke leftist politics and agenda being pressed upon our country we face a battle in our nation in our country uh said retired lieutenant general mike michael flynn trump's former national security advisor turned election denier told the crowd like really did Josh Bice really have to add election denier? And you just, you know, lost my respect right there. I mean, like, is that a necessary detail that's germane to the article, especially since this is a 2022 rally? Like, this is one of my criticisms of G3, by the way. They suck at politics. They might be great on church issues. By all accounts, they are but they suck at politics. They don't understand politics. Uh, this is a comment on the Carrie Lake thing. You have an imbibed feminist ideology to a great, to a great extent uh, to run for governor as a woman. Yes, um, I, th I think that is true. I think that's largely inescapable in our for a lot of people in our culture, but yeah. Um, and continuing with the Mike Flynn quote, I mean, Christianity is under attack. Honestly, it feels like everything is under attack. After Donald Trump spoke, more than 100 people lined up to be baptized. The movement using the term Christian nationalism to describe their cause and Christian baptism as a sign. I, I don't get the point of that paragraph. Other than to virtue signal about the election. Now, there is some legitimate grievance in this paragraph. As you continue to survey the political landscape, you can find Christian nationalism appearing on T-shirts that proclaim proud Christian nationalists sold by Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, of Georgia, Samuel Perry, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Oklahoma and the co-author of the book, The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to Destroy a threat to American democracy makes a claim that white Christian nationalism is rapidly growing or is, is growing rapidly within the Republican Party. While we continue to see Christian nationalism appearing in the sphere of politics, that's not exactly the version being discussed within evangelicalism. Uh, you want to tackle that one first? Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, I think is also the embodiment of this. <laughs> I mean the problem. I mean again, the problem with Marjorie Taylor Greene is she's a firebrand, not an intellectual. And that's, I, I think and again, she's actually pretty dumb. Yeah, I don't respect her intelligence. And she's she's the uh, you know the horseshoe theory of practical intelligence that meme. She's the uh, low IQ that no, comes to the but, right conclusions. That's who I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is. Stephen Wolf would be on the other side of that. Joe Webb and I think would be on the other side of that. Uh, Doug Wilson, I already, and, did I already say him? He's a smart dude. I think he's we sometimes up, a little uh, too smart for his own good. But Warren Dober would be on the uh, yes. Marjorie she's Taylor also Green on the uh, unintelligent as it relates to anything faith related side. Um, but and then he quote he goes on to give credence to Samuel Perry, who's that dude that was on and and that segment that N NBC did on Doug Wilson. Uh, this the segment that she did on Doug. They did on Doug Wilson. Samuel Perry was a part of that segment, and I, I get that. I like 
MTG, my goodness, you are losing me. Look, I'm I not just saying I don't, don't like her. She no, she but con- when she talks about faith, it's cringe. And yes. she also backed uh, viciously backed what's his face, Kevin McCarthy. And let me just—I don't say, know how uh, you justify that move either. But politically, I think she comes to the right conclusions. I just don't think she's very smart. She doesn't well, know how to articulate uh, the any issue related to theology. Well, I, I mean, let's be honest—we need firebrands and intellectuals. She's a firebrand. That's her lane. Yeah, I agree she has a place, but her trying to market Christian nationalism, I do agree, is cringe. And, you know, she has a book coming out on it or something. And it's like, and Stephen Wolf is discussing, you know, how do I capitalize off her trying to sell a book about Christian nationalism, offer up the real thing. At the same time, the gold standard definition, uh, hold on, it's her. Yeah. At the same time, the gold standard definition of this movement within evangelicalism is by Stephen Wolf in his book, A Case for Christian Nationalism. However, prior to the release of his book, Andrew Torba and Andrew Eisker released a much shorter book titled Christian Nationalism, A Biblical Guide for Taking Dominion and Discipling a Nation. Andrew Torba is the founder and CEO of Gab.com. Andrew Eisker is the pastor of Fourth Street Evangelical Church and went with Seca. Minnesota. He is a graduate of Minnesota State University. Uh, seriously? Uh, uh, Mankato and Greifriars Hall, Ministerial Training School in Moscow, Idaho. And he has several churches in Missouri. And he has served several churches in Missouri, West Virginia, and Minnesota. The description of their book provides the following statement regarding Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is a spiritual, political, and cultural movement comprised of Christians who are working to build a parallel Christian society grounded in a biblical worldview. This book is a guide for Christians to take dominion and disciple their families, churches, and all nations for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. I do have issues with that definition because that definition includes the political, but it kind of neglects the political. It does. I mean, again, I tore the Torba book to shreds. And yeah, I know you weren't a my, fan of it. Yeah, I was not a fan of it. And one of, and yeah, pretty much how build a parallel Christian society. Yes, Andrew Torba and Eisker, they both conflate Christian nationalism with the parallel economy. So they are pretty much one and the same as far as the book is concerned. And his premise is that Christian nationalism, or i.e. the parallel economy, would one day overtake the worldly economy. And therefore, you have a Christian nation. So basically, the worldly economy that controls its own money has its own supply chains, that uh, you know has you know a military will one day collapse, and then the Christian economy will supplant it. That's kind of where he comes goes at it. So it's not even a long march through the institutions kind of thing. No, it's a build your own institutions, and one day they'll take over. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I don't feel that as a premise. That's not how Rome was Christianized. Uh, moving on to the Bice article, Doug Wilson, pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, provides the following endorsement to Andrew Torba and Andrew Eisker's book. If you want to know more about Christian nationalism, this book is for you. You will be getting your info from the horse's mouth, as it were, instead of from the mainstream media, which is more, which is oriented more to the other end of the horse. I guarantee Doug Wilson has a good way with words. I guarantee you he didn't read the book, though. 
so again, this this quote just to take a jab at Doug Wilson. I don't uh, like it. TD I, says at least a chapter on dispensationalism in Torba's book was on point. Was it? I would have preferred more detail. I ripped that chapter for not having enough detail. Oh. Again, I mean the whole book I could do the same for, but that one in particular, I did. I did talk about how it's just like okay, you're gonna talk about oh the Talmud says X Y Z. Well, quote the quote it. Put it in there, but he kind of doesn't do that, and that's what I took issue with him. Okay. In book. Now I thought that there was some beef between Andrew Torba and Doug Wilson on some level, but I don't, and Canon Press clearly re, did not publish the book because it was self-published. Uh, fun fact about that book. So, yeah, Canon Press. I don't like how they do business. Uh, I don't think it's a biblical way to, that they do business in terms of book selection material. I mean, because again, they they don't take requests or they don't take unsolicited requests or submissions. Well, the other thing with again Doug, having a Doug Wilson thing again, I don't know why they're even going that route. It should, I think it's it's kind of like you prejudice the jury kind of thing because whatever people think of Doug Wilson is what they're going to think of Christian nationalism. But well. This or, is what he's going to do to prejudice the jury here. This next paragraph. Yeah. Andrew Torba, the founder of Gab.com, has also come under intense heat for public statements that were perceived as anti-Semitic, including his desire, his stated desire to overcome Judeo-Bolshevik society, a term that makes the claim that communism is a Jewish plot. Uh, just a little side note on that, because that is, you know, you're on the border between, you know, based and fed post when he's talk like that. And the thing is, like, I believe the Bal Mo Jews were more prevalent in the Menshevik movement in Soviet Russia rather than the Bolshevik movement. But it's not like you can't really deny that disproportionately speaking, it was still higher in the Bolshevik movement. But. Uh, I think Jews actually historically preferred the Mensheviks, which were also bad. But uh, Torba has also said conservative Jews and non-Christians are welcome to say in his, stay in his ideal society, going so far as to say about the following version about his following version of Christianity. And this was the quote uh, Christian was... nationalist movement. Yes, this this part came under fire. What we're reading is not the original variation of this article. He edited it because he. Uh, mischaracterized or misquoted what he said, because even this is still sloppily written. Uh, because, uh, yeah, this is about Christian nationalism. The quote is, we don't want people who are atheists. We don't want people who are Jewish. We don't want people who are, you know, non-believers, agnostic, whatever. This is an explicitly Christian movement because it's an explicitly Christian country. So Andrew Torba says that, you know, you have to be a Christian to be a Christian nationalist. That's a long-winded way to say you have to be a Christian uh, to be a Christian nationalism. Uh, and then, needless to say, such statements have not been received well, which has opened the door for Wolf's book, which has gained a great deal of popularity. So he's basically saying Andrew Torba and Andrew Eisker had their chance to set the definition, but instead Stephen Wolf's definition has become the gold standard because of the heat that they took. I think that's kind of what he's saying. And 
that does kind of go in line with uh, Virgil Walker's upcoming article, presumably just based off, you know, what I read in the first sentence. And I know Virgil Walker hates the term nationalism. Uh, Stephen Wolf's published his book, A Case for Christian Nationalism, in November of 2022. In his book, Wolf lays out several key points regarding Christian nationalism, including the following definition. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. That is a very academic definition. I like it. I think that, you know, my definition is slightly better because it's less eggheaded. But uh, again, Stephen Wolf, really smart guy. It definitely reflected in his definition. I don't see what's disagreeable about that definition. You've read the book. Uh, I'm sure you can flesh, flesh it out a little bit more. I mean, I, I did like his definition. I mean, again, my problems with the book weren't his definitions. Um, let me actually see what I, cause I wrote a review on that. So you can always check that out, but cause it's a 478 page book. So just to give you a, a rundown, um, I said it was a comprehensive and well-rounded definition encompasses what makes a nation that laws and customs are definitive elements in a nation. So, and the other thing I liked about it is it doesn't Americanize the context of Christian nationalism nor does it l limit the scope to contemporary politics so again this this yes. is so i watched a Stephen wolf interview today and he talked about you know this is a movement that can be done in other parts of the world which is what i capture in my definition uh which we wrote about uh in we discussed in the last video i did on this topic and because I talk about Christianizing a nation, what he's talking about is a nation self-consciously saying we are imposing Christian values and Christian social customs because Stephen Wolf has a large emphasis on the a social fabric that binds us all together. That's kind of what I understand from him. And I guess people have issue with heavenly good, even though, again, I, I think there's heavenly good done or that is the result of Christians in government pointing public policy to Christ. Now, it's sure. not like it automatically saves people, but the argument that's being made from people at G3 and others is that cultural Christianity condemns people, which is highly unbiblical. I mean, I know, uh, I forget the guy's name. I'd have to look it up real quick, but like John Harris had the interview with a guy talking about the, the idea of civic religion. So it's the idea that every country, every nation has a, a form of civic religion. I mean, just the fact that like America has Easter and Christmas as federal holidays would be pointing towards the heavenly good. So, I mean, they're still recognizing or swearing the or swearing uh, the, the Constitution on the Bible for the inauguration. That's or public prayer in meetings that's pointing towards the heavenly good. Right. Uh uh, Jamie Starfish says, none of these G3 guys were doing this until very recently. It's very strange what they're doing. I think they're just getting involved in a conversation. Although I do believe that they started the conversation, but they can't stop it. So they, they are confronting it because it's, I think they're irrelevant if they don't. Well, That's I mean, just I my opinion. I think they, they understand that this is gaining traction, but again, so, so I think they're not just doing it out of the blue, like. They're not just doing some kind of like QAnon 
bashing their i think they're actually doing it because there's material there's a material movement in this issue in this issue yeah and they're out of the conversation now i'm gonna ask you this uh one of the biggest criticisms against Stephen Wolf's book is that he explicitly says he's not going to be doing a bunch of uh, ex, ex, uh, exegesis on the text, and he's relying on historic reformed assumptions. What's your take on that? I mean, yeah, that's that's like the quote that's probably one of the more taken out of context. Again, my, I mean, and I mean, this article actually brings it up uh, where he talks about uh he claims to build upon francis Churchin and john calvin obviously others in that list would be thomas aquinas and uh and um and augustine so he is building upon christian tradition obviously he would claim he's not a theologian but a political scientist and the other thing i'll point to is basically the premise like he argues the theological premise of a nation I mean, then, the way I see it, he's very honest about who he is. And Stephen, so Stephen was very honest about who he is. So when he talks about politics and people, you know, call him racist for it, which is what the G3 people largely did, uh, you know, because they took it in a theological category, which wasn't correct. And when you, when you talk about, okay, there's a context for it. I, I kind of understood that as well. And well, the other thing that gets taken out of context, I think, is the quote where he talks about, I'm not Baptist, so I'm not doing the work for you. Which I don't I don't mind. I, I don't mind doing I don't mind doing that work for him. But I will it's not say for like, him, it's for Baptists everywhere. Yes. <laughs> but when you but when he says he's not doing a whole lot of the exegesis, I mean, obviously the first couple chapters set up a lot of the theological framework then the rest of the book builds upon that framework. So one thing you have to understand is, and I'd be curious what the G3 people would say, is what would a pre-Lapsarian world look like? And if they can't answer that question, then they really can't necessarily respond to a lot of the arguments that... All right, Stephen that's a Wolf big word. Can you define it for us? <laughs> Pre-Lapsarian being pre-fall. So what would an unfallen man look like what would i think an unfallen human civilization look like and stephen wolf was based off of or you know he was basically taken out of context by james Lindsay, who accused him of gnosticism for having an answer to these esoteric or you know needle dancing angel type of question because that's what it is i mean the gnosticism thing was his rebuttal argument so it wasn't even like his argument. That's him in the book responding to possible objections, particularly it's either first or second period or this world's not our home mentality. So that's the argument that he was responding to and says that, yes, this world's not our home, i.e. the Gnosticism, because, you know, the Bible says this world's not our home. We're citizens of a higher kingdom. So he's still saying you're pointed towards heavenly good, even while on the earth. I mean, again, the quote's taken out of context because it's also a response to an objection. But yes, but if you don't, but one of the arguments is that he would say government would exist in a pre-fallen world, that if that given enough human population, you would have some form of civil hierarchy. So therefore civil hierarchy is good or having music in a society is good and would exist in a pre-Lapsarian world. So therefore music and the fine arts are good. 
or having and he would extend that to nations existing or different ethnos existing in a pre-lapse argument again he would extend that or maybe not different languages but he would say that you know people that would settle in one part of the earth in a pre-fallen world would be distinct in culture and customs from those in another part so he says that these things dare i say cultural diversity is a good thing wow that's really racist He's a white supremacist. Um, moving on with back to the article, now that we've painted a bigger picture of what Stephen Wolf articulates for people who haven't read the 400 and however many pages, uh, while the, moving on to the Bice article, while this is not a review of, the, of Wolf's book, that what he provides us is a print, in print is a working definition for what he references as a pan-Protestant project. Perhaps one of the most controversial chapters of the book is found in the seventh chapter where Wolf lays out his views regarding civil government and the great man that he calls the Christian prince. He claimed, <clears throat> he claimed <clears throat> to build upon uh, Francis Tarenton and John Calvin, as he writes, <clears throat> the prince, unlike church ministers, is a mediator, a vicar of God in outward civil affairs. As Calvin said, Civil rulers represent pers the person of God whose substitute they, in a manner, act. <clears throat> For this reason, the prince calls is called a god in Scripture, referring to Psalm 82, verse 6. He has, as Calvin said, a sacred character and title. In a sense, we see God in the magistrate. This, these statements create more questions and growing concerns among those of us who hold a different view of the church of a church and state relationship. Now, anywhere did that quote suggest that the church would run? Uh, the, the, the keys of the church would be mixed with the sword of the government, which is where he's going to go with this. I mean, Again, I, I thoroughly enjoyed The Christian Prince as a chapter in the book. I thought it was a very pleasant read. I mean, obviously, the notion of Christian Prince got, you know, misconstrued because, I mean, I took it as very Machiavellian and, like, the idea of Machiavelli is the prince. So I thought it was that. Obviously, you know, the idea of a Christian Caesar. Um, Sounds and, pretty based. Well, and just to kind of read the footnote, like, the quote in question is is um i'm not calling for a minor uh, a monarchical regime over every civil polity and certainly not an autocracy uh, though i envision a measured and theocratic caesarism the prince would be a world shaker for our time who brings a christian people to self-consciousness and who in his rise restores the will for their good the prince is a fitting title for a man of dignity and greatness of soul who will lead the people to liberty, virtue, and godliness, to greatness. And then the the footnote at the bottom of the page, which I think is very important, is is a contrary to uh, calumnies of G.K. Chesterton against Caesarism. Uh, man, men trust a great a great man not because they distrust themselves, because social conditions deny their self trust as an outlet for noble action, and the great man offers a path to noble action. Viz, a path out of ideological mediocrity, slavishness, and 
in dignity. Caesarism is often defined as authoritarian or autocratic by those who see politics dualistically. Regimes are either democratic or authoritarian or di dictatorial. I reject the framing and would point out that modern democracy is often more oppressive than its alternatives. I prefer Caesariana, uh, Caesari Caesarism in our time because it emphasizes personality in civil wars. So, I mean, I took this as him articulating the appeal of Trump. I thought of Trump too. Yes. And but the problem is, my problem with Trump is that he doesn't live up to Julius Caesar. He's not our Julius Caesar. And he refuses to be. But so Wolf's argument is mainly that it would take a Trumpian like figure to institute Christian nationalism. And Caesarian figure. Caesarian, yes. But, but, so that's where he's coming from. Well, and my, my crit criticisms of the chapter were not necessarily that the, that the prince would be a spiritual leader, because I would say that all politicians are, in some sense, spiritual leaders. I mean, you see this in the, in the, uh, is in Israel and Judah where the kings were spiritual leaders, even though they didn't technically oversee the temple. Yep, there's a you separate ecclesiastical government. And again, you see this in COVID, where one man became pope and all the churches bent the knee. And that's actually where my criticisms come from, is it would be good if the politicians were curtailing the church in its excess, which you might see with like a Tucker Carlson taking snap uh, jabs at Beth Moore, Russell Moore, and other figures. Tim in, Keller. In Tim Keller. So, you know, if you had a politician doing that, like Donald Trump saying Russell Moore's an awful person, to give you a example. A throwback to 2016. Yeah. If you had your president of the United States saying that, that would curtail the worst excesses of the church. The yeah. problem... The problem I take with this chapter, or at least my criticism of it, is it generally would work the opposite direction, where the where the so-called prince is trying to interfere with the church, not the church rebuke, or which would require the church to offer rebuke, rather than the church being astray and the prince being the corrective force. But in several ways, because we can look at Donald Trump as this kind of prince-like figure, and he was sort of a corrective force in some ways for the church because he, he was a revealer. And he, a lot of people were exposed by Donald Trump. Like David French was exposed because of Donald Trump. Beth Moore was largely exposed because of Donald Trump. There's a lot of Beth Moore underlying problems. Russell Moore, a lot of underlying problems, but nonetheless exposed because of Donald Trump. So there is that. The problem is, I, I might actually be more inclined to agree with them, but the problem is, what? who is that figure that established it for, was it Alfred the Great? Was he the Christian ruler that established England as a Christian? Yes, Alfred the Great would be like English common law really dis descends from him. Would he not have been a Christian prince in his day? Right. But according to a lot of these objectors to Christian nationalism, cultural Christianity is bad and it hinders the advancement of the gospel. But you can point to Christian leaders like Alfred the Great or even Constantine to some degree, even though uh, I think his salvation is a little bit more dubious. Now, Stephen Wolf does not address Constantine in the book. I pointed out in my review of the book that it'd be like Constantine calling an Nicene Council. 
and you're shepherding the church back to orthodoxy. Um, the language that Wolf uses in the book, uh, he uses marriage as a metaphor because he's obviously, you know, he actually is preaching, you know, male headship in a marriage. That he says that the the husband does not fulfill the duties of the wife, but he can offer rebuke if she is failing to do her duties. So he's not taking over her duties, but instead rebuking her or correcting her if she is derelict in her duties. That's that's how he frames it. All right. I want to speed through this a little faster. A brief case against Christian nationalism is the next section. Uh, while I do fully embrace the once pejorative label of Christian, I would I would want to distance myself from any form of Christian nationalism proper. I'm concerned with various hybrid approaches to Christianity, i.e. woke church or white Christian or black Christian, as examples of this confusion. The foundation for my position is based on the theological conclusions that I've come to embrace through a study of scripture with application to our context. Allow me to explain some of my concerns and set forth some unanswered questions. My attempt is laying out my concerns as a stand for the gospel, for God's church, for the truth, for freedom, and that I would hope would not be viewed as intentionally divisive, obtuse, or public opposition against friends. Christians should pursue unity when possible, but I likewise believe it's possible to disagree on the issue of Christian nationalism without unnecessarily fracturing friendships. Those who hold, uh, I, I do want to say I agree with that for a second. Those who hold the issue of Christian nationalism to a higher degree of essentials may press this to a necessary point of division, and such in such cases, although it's not my intention, I would concur. Um, I mean, I think it, it should only be elevated to points of division when I guess it when the opposite approach is antinomian in some right, regards. Yeah, I, I think that's a Meaning, fair way to say. But, you know, it's not a primary level issue. And he's right about that. Concerns regarding government overreach. I embrace the idea set forth in the first paragraph of the 1689 London Baptist Confession in chapter one on the Holy Spirit regarding the sufficiency of scripture for faith and life obedience to God in chapter 24 on the civil of the civil magistrate. The 1689 LBC in paragraph one says that God has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Notice that there is nothing stated about the keys. It only references the sword. Therefore, conflating these two responsibilities would, in my estimation, in estimation be a contradiction of Scripture. We must remember that the writers of the 1689 LBC intentionally omit a paragraph contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith that dealt with the role of the magistrate in overseeing various powers to preserve order, peace, truth, worship, and discipline of the church. Our Baptist forefathers were aiming at religious liberty for the church rather than encouraging the civil magistrate to take hold of both the sword and the keys. I reject the integration of church and state at any formal level. I believe that these two spheres, to use a Kuyperian model of sphere sovereignty, is helpful to distinguish the differences between the sphere of the church and the sphere of the state. One is civil, the other is spiritual. One has been given the sword while the other has been given key, the keys. 
While there will be some overlap within both spheres, so specifically the church within a nation will be members of both spheres, there is a boundary that must be maintained. Just as a king and the priest had very different or distinct separation within the Old Testament Israel, I believe that the civil magistrate may, must never take up the keys of the church, nor should the church seek to wield the sword that's clearly given to the magistrate. Uh, what do you think on that? I mean, if you're going to, I mean, again, we did the article, the can a Baptist be a Christian nationalist? And we talk explicitly about the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which, again, if you were to design a government based on the Christian, the civil, based on their doctrine of civil magistrate, it would be something that is very similar to Christian nationalism. Because, again, the the notion of religious liberty as we commonly understand it today is not what the people... It's in, not biblical. It's not the 1689 understanding of religious liberty. Religious liberty means if you want to be a Presbyterian, be a Presbyterian. It doesn't mean import a bunch of Muslims, settle them in Dearborn, Michigan, and that's religious liberty. Now, this was the paragraph that set off all the red flags for this article. He is conflating integralism, which is a Roman papist doctrine on civil magistrate with Christian nationalism, which is distinctly Protestant. And I say distinctly Protestant because no one's advocating for a Pope. So when Scott O'Neill, you know, tweets about, and Josh Bice tweet about a Protestant Pope, they're getting clowned because, uh, you know, first of all, a Protestant Pope still sounds better than Joe Biden. Second of all, no one's asking for that. Well, and then third of all, this is my clowning of them. People in John MacArthur's camp really shouldn't be accusing any other protestants of wanting to erect a protestant pope that that, I mean, that john, is some plank in your own or log in your own eye ironically john macarthur came under oh john macarthur came under heat for talking about religious liberty oh yeah so he, he talked about religious liberty you know isn't a biblical concept and he can't you're right. right and again keep in mind this is this also the 1689 because he only read the first paragraph of chapter 24 which is uh, in the, and this is, it is lawful for a Christian to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto in management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. So again, the 1689 assumes that it is, it is preferable for a Christian to be a ruler than a non-Christian. All right. And here's a uh, church history uh paragraph church history is replete with cases of religious establishment using force to bring about submission of the people this was true during the reformation when john rogers was burned at the stake in 1555 under the reign of queen mary one aka bloody mary wasn't she catholic or am i confusing the mary that mary is named maryland is named after with another mary uh, this led to the burning of oxford martyrs in the street during the days of the puritans such unbiblical pressures were upon pressures upon the illegal brand of Christianity opened the door for the great ejection and persecution. John Bunyan spent 12 long years in prison because of such governmental overreach. Therefore, I reject the argument made in a roundtable conversation by Tim Klein that since mankind is made up of body and soul, the role of the magistrate is to lead the people in the gates of eternal salvation. I would see this as a commission of God's church. 
again, I just refer back to what are Christians to do and government. Well, magistrates are inherently spiritual leaders, regardless. Saul was a spiritual leader. Yeah. And then he tried to usurp the priest priestly role as king, but he was still thought of as a spiritual leader to the Israelites who said, look, we want to die. We want a king like all the other nations. Uh, when we study the founding of the earth or founding of the United States of America, not the earth, we see the framers of the constitution of the United States aiming at something different than what they had experienced in a negative sense in their motherland. That's why the first amendment reads Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right to, of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Therefore, over the last several years, it was right and good for the church to question the authority of the state to enforce lockdown rules and prevent the church from assembling to worship God during the COVID-19 controversy. If it was proper for pastors to speak directly to the civil rulers and to call them to repentance, why would Christians want to make the case that the government should have one hand on the sword and the other upon the keys. That's a, this is a straw man. That last part's a straw man. The part before that, again, G3 was nowhere on the COVID issue. They were also, nowhere to be found on the COVID issue. It, it should also be noted that a Christian nationalist government would not have locked down churches. But a Christian nationalist government acting upon Christian principles would not have locked down the country at all. Or sponsored research in a foreign lab if you want to really get that far. research or, or yeah or done its entire pandemic response to the benefit of big pharmaceutical corporations which is greed so i mean yeah if you really want to go do you really think american like rejecting christianity didn't have anything to do with well, our response he, he gets COVID? worse he gets worse because th these are some modern examples he celebrates I would adamantly oppose the view that Christians should shrink back from the public square and refuse to preach the gospel to everyone, including the civil authorities. John the Baptist spoke directly to Herod about the sin of adultery, and the pulpits today should not be silent regarding pagan leaders who openly sin and engage in legislating through a pagan lens. We see instances of other men doing this historically, including some modern examples, such as John Piper calling out the the president of the United States and John MacArthur calling out the governor, governor Gavin Newsom for the sin of supporting and legislating the slaughter of babies. Both Piper and MacArthur would reject post-millennialism and Christian nationalism. Again, John Piper is a terrible example to point to on the end, the issue of Christians engaging in the public sphere. John Piper uh, in the 2020 election cycle wrote an article basically saying it's okay to vote Democrat. Is he also, really a positive example to cite here? And keep in mind, are, are these both these examples after Biden? Both of the I don't know. I don't care about the John the John Piper one. You're not you're not a serious person if you're the, looking the, at John Piper as an example of how Christians should operate in the public sphere. Because I think not the a Macar serious person. The Mark MacArthur one's from last year, I think. So yes. it's not even. It's I, not I wrote even that like, article. It's yeah. not even like you're going back five years. You're. The, the, and that's the other thing. John McCar MacArthur has only been good in the public sphere since 2020. Late or Third July, quarter. late July 2020, John MacArthur realized that the theology he had taught for, I don't know, 50 other years of ministry was wrong. 
because it didn't compute when it related to the COVID government government lockdowns. So John MacArthur was wrong on this issue for decades. Well, and again, maybe just as an appeal to common ground with G3. So he says we should condemn the government for legislating in a pagan lens. So that does that mean he would praise if we were legislating in a Christian lens? That we were legislating Christian morality? That, that forget, would naturally for, follow. Forget first table stuff. Like, look, How about even just a second that. table? Can we at like, least agree on that? Would, you know, outlawing abortion or with... Uh, with penalties, with banning pornography, would things like that be praised by G3? Uh, because that would be also, called because that would be called yeah. Christian nationalism. And I, I tweet that all the time. I was like Christian nationalist W when you know Florida wants to execute child pedophile rape or child rapist. Um, both so they would reject postmillennialism. You know who else rejects postmillennialism? Stephen Wolf. Stephen Wolf, William Wolf. I'm not postmillennial. Vody Bauckham, okay. Uh, well, yeah. yeah uh, John Bowie. MacArthur's, you know, pre-mill leaky dispy, which I think is the least, uh, yeah, I think post-millennialism is down there as far as biblical evidence goes, but it's above dispensationalism. Uh, therefore, I wholeheartedly disagree with those that claim who claim that a rejection of Christian nationalism will result in pietism, where Christians hide beneath church pews while praying incessantly, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The charge of shrinking back in fear of addressing sin in the public square is simply inaccurate and uncharitable. I think his whole characterization of uh, Christian nationalism being integralism is inaccurate and uncharitable. But... All right, uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, the danger of nominal Christianity as a Baptist in the vein of the Reformation, Reformed Baptist. I embrace 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and I baptize believers as they profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Therefore, any attempt to baptize the nations by forcing people by magisterial rule to embrace the label of Christian would be an overreach of governmental authority. This error can find a direct connection to the theological error of paedo-baptism. As a Baptist, there is an obvious disconnect to at this point, which is precisely why Stephen Wolf said, since I'm not credo... Okay, we already talked about this point. Um yeah, this is a ridiculous argument. I mean, I have a written response for this coming up as far as the paedo baptism, credo baptism argument. Right. And I don't I don't think it's a good argument, but obviously Stephen Wolf's a Presbyterian. He's he, going to assume Presbyterian arguments. He's not going to reconcile our theology for us. In fact, it's probably better that Baptists reconcile their theology. Uh, but yeah, and there's nothing about the magistrate forcing people to uh, accept the Christian label. Thus, I believe Christian nationalism leads to the spread of nominal Christianity, which is a cancerous condition that is both dangerous to individual citizens, providing one with false eternal security, and threatens the whole of civilization under big government rule. Which, again, I mean, keep in mind, one of the we're already under that. <laughs> one of the chapters in Stephen Wolf's book is a rebuke of Russell Moore celebrating the decline of cultural Christianity. So that's right. just echo you're echoing Russell Moore. Yeah, exactly. So let's go to his questions and you'll see some James Lindsay influencing these. He's pulling the strings here, I think. Uh, number one, is Christian nationalism, as defined in this article, compatible within the framework of the 1689 London Baptist Confession? Can a purpose 
person B, a Baptist historically and embraced this view of the church and state relationships? Shorter answer, yes. yes we already covered this in a previous well, video. Let me uh, let me raise the question. Since the 1689 is Sabbatarian, and unlike like MacArthur's view on the Sabbath, they're a lot more stringent. Um, would a society of 1689 Baptist have blue laws or otherwise restrict certain activities on Sunday? Would they be doing NFL Sunday ticket? Probably not. Uh, with, will the empowerment of a Christian prince and the punishment of sinners encroach upon Jesus's blueprint of church discipline found in Matthew 18? I think the answer is still no. There's sin issues that aren't crime issues. I mean, you're not going to go to jail for being fat. I mean, one thing I do say is it is technically, I mean, there's no verse that says that the state cannot punish heretics. In fact, the Bible would prescribe that heretics be put to death, to death, particularly false those prophets. that are particularly those that are false prophets. So if it is technically lawful under the Mosaic law, then it is certainly lawful under a Romans 13 understanding, especially since, you know, someone making a false prophecy could actually now endanger. they would get burned at the stake right i don't know but they would they would endanger the social order I, technically. I, I believe in medieval times christians get beheaded but pagans get burned but, uh if a christian prince this is question three is empowered what will happen to the first amendment of the constitution of the united states of america as a citizen of the united states and Christian living in this nation? I believe this is a valid question. Well, how did, you know, the Constitution interact with the first uh, 40, 50 years of the America's existence where also, they had state-sponsored churches? Also, you're valuing the First Amendment over what Scripture would say. Again, if you had to use the 1689 that he supposedly embraces to form your political ideology. You, you wouldn't would, be asking this question. Yes. And again, you would have a very MacArthur-esque quote on what religious, is religious yeah. liberty. Yeah, I think you uh, just juked him there. Um, I'm going to MacArthur card you. Okay, yeah. That's very fitting for G3. Uh, this is question four. Could there be a concerted effort within the shadows of the political sphere that are manipulating a reaction within Christian within the Christian community to the woke agenda in order to bring about the specific change in relationship between church and state that could actually be weaponized against the church? This is a James Lindsay question. Because, you know, what's interesting is that the objections to that Stephen Wolf tweet about white evangelicals being the bulwark of society or moral bulwark of against insanity in America. Uh, the point about that is that, you know, demographics and critical mass. That's the point that he was making. But he was called racist for that because there are no, you know, you know, race is an invented concept, which is actually what woke people believe. Woke people believe that race was an invented concept by white slave traders to justify slavery. When in reality, race, as typically used, has always really been interchangeable with the notion of ethnicity which is a biblical concept. So, I mean, yeah, it might vary the ones, by, yeah, it might vary by society. So like Christian you're, if you're in China, don't... if you're in China, if you're a Japanese person, you're a different race Yeah, in their eyes. But, and just to, let's just really address this point. Are there not already concerted efforts in the shadows of the political sphere to 
manipulate the Christian community. We've seen this with the dark money, uh, the George Soros uh, money, that that was pretty much a premise of enemies within the church. That entire document, documentary is, is a follow the money trail, which that, that was what I found the most shocking. Then you have the Good Neighbor Initiative, right, with uh, Russell Moore taking government money to peddle the vaccines. Yes. So that was also Facebook money. That wasn't, gov- yeah, Zuckerberg. So you have yeah. the FBI infiltrating yeah. Catholic Catholic churches. And uh, apparently Brandon, or is it Brian Artin, Artin, who's the coiner of the term evangelical dark web? He's the one that first used the term evangelical dark web, by the way. That's a fun fact. And he's he's apparently a Fed, which is a shock to very few people who know who that so is. So we're going to pretend that the church is not being infiltrated or subverted by this godless government that we currently have already? Yes, the pagan government will per- pro- persecute the church. A Christian government will inevitably uh, persecute the pagans. That's how Rome was Christianized. That's how Europe was largely Christianized. Uh, Are there parallels between methodologies of Christian nationalism and CRTI that introduce ethnocentrism? I think no. We just acknowledge that race is a thing. And I think we're just tired of acting like, you know, it's basically it's okay to be white. You remember that slogan from like 2017? It's okay to be white. I think that's what even, you know, a lot of Christian nationalists kind of emphasize or empathize with. Uh, the it's okay to be white. That's basically it. And that they don't like that. They don't like uh, Stephen Wolf talking about white evangelicals as a voting block. They don't like that. Well, I mean, I know Virgil Walker, like on Whitlock, He took major issue about- with that. Yes, but he's like, oh, you know, white people will be in the minority. Yeah, that's not a good thing for America. You know what's like probably the, true is that white people in the are currently in the minority of believers, probably. You know, the global south. That's certainly true in most denominations. Uh, that That's a James Lindsay question, by the way. Do the goals of Christian nationalism fit within the ethos of the New Testament Christianity? In other words, if John Bunyan had been in Christian nationalism, uh, a Christian nationalist, will we still have the Pilgrim's Progress? I mean, if John Bunyan were alive today, he would be called a Christian nationalist because his beliefs on what should and should not be law are so far to the right of us are so are so based that he would be called a Christian nationalist because, again, the things we believe now, the things that are internalized now are so beyond what anyone in majority of history or majority of Christian history would have ever thought. I mean, he would I mean, he would think women voting is probably insane. Yeah. Uh, Charles says, I like the term ethnicity is more appropriate and accurate term. I think you're right. I'm just saying historically, the terms have been used pretty much the same way. Well, ethnicity is clearly defined i mean race can mean something different in the context. yeah I, I think race is the is the word that's changed more in its uh denotation uh and again especially in american context where race is more about skin color but um, race in america used to be more about ethnicity you know when you're talking about italian immigrants polish immigrants they had their own neighborhoods and cities and stuff like that irish like it was more of a thing back then but and refer now, to, you know, white is white. 
and then and, and refer to Joel Webin on any Pilgrim's Progress questions. Yeah, he, he loves that. So I imagine he would probably identify with uh because John Bunyan was Baptist, right? Reformed Baptist. That's my impression. Uh when it comes to that's not a James Lindsay question, by the way. When it comes to ordering a Christian nation under the banner of Christian nationalism, what version of Christianity will be enforced? In other words, will it be a minimalist approach to embracing the Apostles' Creed or something more robust? Who makes this decision and what on what creeds is the law of the land? And I think we are, you know, the movement's trying to form those the answers to those questions. I mean, he kind of he even answers his own question with the Apostles' Creed. That's a that's a good starting place. Uh, ecumenical Christianity. And this is where he says, the church has been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the gospel. We are engaged to the common public sphere by delivering the good news of and supporting efforts to pass biblical legislation, which will lead to an orderly society and, and the glory of God. And or as Christians, we labor in the fields with the seeds, seed of the gospel, sowing and watering, but only God can give the increase and the human heart will not be changed by civil legislation. That is not the realm of the civil magistrate. It's the realm of the sovereign God who has the authority to call dead sinners to life by summoning them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I would agree with every word of that. The problem is he's conflating Christian nationalism with integralism and thus saying we're using civil legislation to change people's heart, change people's hearts. And it's like, we're rather just pointing them to what Christian standards are. That well, we have I, these standards as Christians and we're going to hold them to the rest of society. We're going to legislate our morality. But I don't understand how that is consistent with his statement on nominal Christianity, because that's basically the foundations of what created so-called nominal Christianity. Right. Again, so, if that if the person that wrote that paragraph would sit down with so-called Christian nationalists, they would probably agree on 90% of what they would want to accomplish if they were to write out a platform. So I think we can move on to the Gospel Coalition article. Like, I did not think that, that this was an honest critique of Christian nationalism because it conflates Christian nationalism with uh, uh, the... Uh, integralism so this is the gospel coalition the good bad and ugly of christian nationalism we're gonna go through this a lot faster patrick schreiner uh this is the author and the subtitle is a baptist perspective what is christian nationalism maybe this is a tired question and maybe you're weary of reading about the topic i'm gonna zoom in a lot but in some ways our perspective on this issue is clearer now than it was in the weeks and months and years since the phrase came into the national spotlight the dust has somewhat settled and the in the time for the hot takes has ended no it has not uh, christian nationalism has become a junk box into which everyone piles his own conceptions but it is not monolithic. Three dominant perspectives on Christian nationalism have arisen over the past several years. Some equate Christian nationalism with rioting at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Others say it's an attempt to enforce God's law in the country. Others claim it's advocating for Christian values on issues such as abortion. How, do you, how you view the movement depends almost entirely on your circles. Look, to maintain, can, we just say, can we just say that points two and three were the exact same? But again, I guess the question is, would they agree with uh, enforcing God's law in the country or Christian values on abortion? I don't, you know, this is the gospel coalition. And second of all, they have no right to be talking about hot takes 
after the year they've had this year the, <laughs> year the, to date <laughs> yeah they have no right to be talking about uh now's not the time for hot takes uh yes now is always the time for hot takes is how I view social media uh, to maintain the unity and establish established by the church spirit. Christians must ask what a person means by a phrase before we jump to judgment. We want to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We should hear out three different forms of Christian nationalism as we evaluate each one. Although different Christian traditions view the church state relationship dissimilarly, my analysis comes from a Baptist perspective. Baptists have long advocated for religious freedom and separation of church and state. Baptists have been weary of theonomy, but have supported governments instituted by God while engaging in political dissent as needed. Uh, just got to do a point of orders and saying Baptists have been long advocated for religious freedom of Christian practice and the separation of church and state. Also because Baptists believe in congregationalism, that the local church, local autonomous church, is the highest ecclesiastical authority. That is the Baptist view on ecclesiology. So that's important to point out why Baptists believe in a separation of church and state, because they believe in the power of the local church. Is this guy even reformed? Is, is he, he even reformed, bro? I don't know. Uh, the good. Influence of Christian Christianity in America and civil life. I think he's going backwards from the three points that he made. For some, Christian nationalism simply means that Christianity has influenced and should continue to influence the nation. They argue that America was founded on transcendent Christian principles. The Declaration of Independence affirms all men are created equal and are endowed by their creators certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Such a principle is worthy of Christian advocacy alongside a biblical view of these of issues like marriage, sexuality, and abortion. Our nation sh sh would be improved by affirming the goodness of natural law principles. The best sense, in the best sense, this form of Christian nationalism doesn't attempt to dominate the political process or make the nation completely Christian, but seeks instead to bring change by persuasion rather than trying to overthrow the government. Adherents advocate their cause by supporting laws, electing candidates, podcasting, writing, and developing think tanks. They won't enforce their opinions, but they won't back down from arguing them for them. Like, what even is this? Is he when has the when has the Gospel Coalition ever advocated Christianizing, like Christian morality in the law? I mean, I'm like, sure it's oh, happened in anomalous. But they sense. generally subvert such efforts. Yeah, generally. Like, uh, uh, you go. No, generally, like just even the idea of you know should, I mean, I'll use their term. Sexual minorities have legal protection under the law. Uh, well, if you read your Bible, the answer is no. But you know, would Gospel Coalition say, well, they have to be granted their rights too? Uh, they wrote an article about that. Because obviously, Christianity today has already crossed that bridge. Oh yeah. So moving on, religion will always have a place in politics. Everyone has a religion she promotes. Gotta love that female pronoun. Yeah, you threw in a female pronoun that just seemed odd. The best form of Christian nationalism advocates for Christian principles, just like secular nationalism advocates for secular principles. If a Christian who is someone who believes that as a citizen our views should influence our nation, then surely every Christian falls under the la label. 
but this isn't what most people mean by Christian nationalism. So you're just, you're calling the good, but you're saying it's not really good. The bad fusion of Christianity and American civil light. I, I probably like where this is going. Not in the, in a, and I mean that ironically. Uh, some view Christian nationalism as a fusion of Christianity with American civil life. Although this might not sound different from above, I don't think it's different. A fusion of Christianity and American life should coalesce. The political process should be overhauled to serve God. The laws of the United States should be explicitly Christian. The fusion view is flawed in at least three ways. First, it contradicts the Christian philosophy of witness. Uh, okay, we're going to read this whole paragraph, then we're going to discuss. Uh, Christ's kingdom is to be advocated by persuasion, not by not power. Conversion must be a free choice, not instituted by command, compelled by the spirit rather than instituted by human law. According to John in Revelation, Christians follow Christ in his victory primarily by witnessing to the reign of Christ, not by enacting laws. We follow a politic of persuasion all the way down. Revelation 12:20 says that we conquer the word or conquer by the word of our testimony. We imitate Christ's victory through suffering. This is our main political witness. We conquer not by fighting the culture war, but by embodying, embodying Jesus' cross-shaped victory. His blood declares him uh, the king of the universe, but our blood speaks to our solidarity with him. We continue to speak of and demonstrate Jesus' cross in our own lives and so remain faithful in a pagan society. I hate everything about this paragraph. I mean, this is your very, you got to go back to the first century. You know, the church is at its greatest when it's suffering. That, that's, again, we didn't Christianize Rome by, you know, martyrdom all the way through multiple centuries. There were some bad years, don't get me wrong, but a, a switch got flipped and the sword of the government was instrumental in the Christianizing of Rome in Europe. You can't deny that. That's just historically asinine. I mean, if you want to talk about persuasion, not power, I mean, there's the Al Capone quote, you know. Well, you can get a lot done with the kind, uh, you can get a lot more done with a kind word and a gun than you can with a kind word. So, <laughs> but at the uh, same time, if you're willing to punish evil, then that means you're objective, you're attaching social stigma, which would then be persuasion. Well, the one thing I need to point out is th is this guy even reformed? Is the gospel really spread? Do people become saved by persuasion? No, they become saved by the Holy Spirit. They become saved by the doctrine of election. Like, this is supposed to be a reformed, like, gospel coalition is theoretically supposed to be reformed, but they're acting like we're trying to sell Christianity, that we can persuade Christianity. It's, you know. He's also taking on a non reformed Baptist tradition to make his entire argument. But yes. This so he's either. he's making a very Arminian argument about the nature of salvation. But at the same time, is the government punishing evil with the sword, as is prescribed in Romans 13? Is that not persuasive? Yes. Is uh, Josiah? Uh, yeah, it, it says if you do this, you will be punished. If you is, sin, you will be punished. Is Josiah uh, killing the idol worship not persuasive? Is Elijah killing all the prophets of Baal? Is that not persuasive? Maybe not for the prophets, but certainly for the bystanders. 
And I agree with this. God ordains both means in the end. Persuasion isn't necessarily Arminian. And that's kind of the point that I'm making is that this is not an either or. This isn't whatever God ordains. I mean, I, I because when to... you start saying that persuasion is the only way that people come to faith, I'm not, you know, I, I think people come to faith, you know, through the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. I also we might view to... it as persuasion, but I'm sure there's been several believers in Christian history that came because Christianity was a social norm enforced by the sword of government, and therefore they believed like small children. I think that's true for many believers in human history. Well, keep in mind, I said he was Arminian for the paragraph before, which, which again, he's referring to more of an Arminian Baptist tradition, not a Reformed Baptist tr tradition to make his argument. That's why I would say, that's why it's Arminian. Uh, that's why the Arminian, because a, right. a lot of a lot of the Arminians didn't really develop the depth of political thought that the Reformed and camp did. Another thing to point out is that these people weren't willing to suffer an ounce for Jesus Christ when they locked down their churches in 2020. So that whole last part of this paragraph is completely invalid for anyone writing at the gospel coalition. You didn't, uh, you didn't want to suffer. You didn't want to risk fines, lawsuits, uh, a cold. So don't, you know, get out of here with that nonsense. You had your chance to suffer. You didn't want to. Yeah, those Calvary Chapel Christian nationalists were willing to suffer. Yes. You know, Chuck Smith's denomination. You know, the one they made a movie about. So second, the fusion view doesn't respect the temporal distinction between this age and the age to come. We live in the gap between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. In this time, religious freedom, diversity, and pluralism are blessings to God's people who wish to live in a peaceable and quiet life. In this age, we can't institute or codify God's law into authority. In that day, that day will come, but it will be done by Christ himself, the true king. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we point forward to the kingdom, but never forget the age in we inhabit. The, uh, we live in the age of choice. Wow, he's not reformed. God has honored humans enough to give them time to repent. This doesn't mean neglecting the natural order of God's created, uh, natural order God created for humanity's good, but it also doesn't speak, uh, doesn't mean seeking to establish the theocratic state. So religious pluralism is a blessing. I mean, that's a David French argument. That's a very much a David French ar argument. But how... uh, is a uh, drag queen story hour also one of the blessings we get to live under? That's a religious right. R-I-T-E. Not but the, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you're basically spectrum. saying that it's a blessing of God's people that people can erect a mosque outside of or across the street from a church or that people can erect, uh, you know, synagogue down the street or a satanic temple. That's a blessing from God. It's really it's idolatry really is a blessing from God. It's it's a self-fulfilling curse from man. So this is a celebration of pluralism, which is in no way biblical. It's, Again, this is find, a biblically indefensible paragraph. Find the Bible verse that says, you know, people have the inherent right to have idol worship. Well, he uses 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, 
for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a, pe a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That that that's not related to the argument that he's making about religious pluralism being good. Third, this form of Christianity goes against key features of the American experiment, mainly pluralism and religious liberty. The First Amendment of the Constitution says Congress shall make no law. With, okay, we've already read the, that tonight. Uh, although America does not have a distinctly Christian past, this form of Christian nationalism overlooks the pluralism and religious liberty for which many founding fathers advocated. Eliminating all dissent might sound attractive, but it would certainly allow governing authorities to get things done and it would certainly allow governing authorities to get things done more quickly but squashing dissent violates human liberty equality and the vision of the founding fathers it requires coercion and of all and conversion of and change from those who dissent if it takes it to its logical conclusions this nationalism undermines the foundation of free society should such a fusion dominate american civil life it would divide the nation rather than unify it. Uniformity is in some aspects of the national life isn't all that bad, but we must always exist beside diversity. Is this guy a boomer? I mean, again, I mean, how, like, how what much, country is he living in? How much time do you have to articulate the beliefs of the founding fathers pertaining to religious liberty because we do tend to take out uh, james madison perhaps thomas jefferson with the separation of church and state comment and perhaps even roger williams as kind of like oh the religious liberty for all people which i don't think jefferson i think jefferson's context was mainly that he believed that the states had that right like he was going to say yeah we're not going to have the federal government impose congress doesn't have the right yeah, we're gonna we're not gonna have the sect, uh, sectarian disputes engaged by the federal government. Was more the Jeffersonian position. Yeah, I mean it's technically not against the First Amendment that the you know states set up you know local church denominations. That technically would not be against the First Amendment in its plain reading. But if you notice, he actually makes a distinct claim that America was not really does not. Oh, he kind of undermines the whole. America has a Christian heritage. Like, I, I guess I would, like, he doesn't really flesh out what he thinks America What was Christian so pluralistic is. about America at its founding? You had regional differences, but what was pluralistic about it? I mean, like, Massachusetts was very congregational. Obviously, the Virginia was more Anglican. So, I mean, a lot of the pluralistic was regionalized. So, one state was one way. And another state was a different way. But again, they had their own established practices codified. Right. And the state of Maryland did not allow, you know, free religious practice for non-Christian beliefs. And it was a Catholic colony. So, uh, yeah. That, so what, what's the pluralism? Is it between, you know, Congregationalist Presbyterians and Catholics? Because that's a significantly different pluralism between, or than what we see now. And then the other thing is, I think the Constitution's dead. Well, I guess, yeah. Well, the other thing is, you're appealing to the Constitution, not the Bible. Uh, yes. The Constitution is not holy scripture. Ray, would you agree that wokeness is a violation of the liberal understanding of separation of church and state? 
I think it is the imposition of a de facto religion. And I think, yes, I think that's right. But at the same time, we also shouldn't legally recognize wokeness as a religion like the IRS mistakenly did with Scientology. So I think it has all the elements of a religion, but we shouldn't respect it as such because that would be us elevating it. Uh, so then we got, was that the third paragraph? Okay, that was. Uh, for all these reasons, this form of Christian nationalism is unbiblical, idealistic, and f philosophically unsound. This Yet this view remains bad and not ugly because we are trying to overthrow, we're not trying to, they're not trying to overthrow the government. Our critiques of the fusion view then should sound different than a rebuke of a darker form of Christian nationalism. Like, yeah, th this article's cringe. Uh, the ugly dominion of Christianity over the American civil life. Christian nationalism can also turn ugly. It can become a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates for a fusion of Christianity with the civil life and does so by dominion. This type of Christian nationalism is exhibited, was exhibited uh, by some on January 6th. Like this the is, FBI? Yeah, apparently. This is the complete conflation of God and country and advocating for it by force or violence when deemed necessary. The critiques of Christian of, of the second position here apply here as well, but the phrase Christian nationalism is at its core a confusion of categories, although we can affirm that and even celebrate when the role, the role Christianity has played in America as a nation. America can't ever be described as a Christian nation. No nation state can be described as a Christian nation state because Christianity doesn't work that way. Disagree? I mean, I guess I mean, this is the use of Christian as a word. How can we use Christian as a word? What are the, you know, is the gospel coalition a Christian ministry? No, because ministries well, can't be Christian. Yeah, yeah, same logic. Families can't be Christian. Businesses can't be Christian. Seminaries can't be Christian. Colleges can't be Christian. Churches can't be Christian. What can be Christian? Oh, just the individual believer. Well, that's not how language works. And you're going and you're trying to do a Jesus juke here after hailing the U.S. Constitution as equal to the Bible in your argumentation. Another major critique I have of this article is that it only focuses on the American context of Christian nationalism, not trying to extrapolate it, a, an ideology that can be applied in various countries of differing cultures by Christians. Uh, as Lee Camps and I have suggested Christianity and nation states are two vastly different ent entities. In terms of access, people enter Christianity by voluntary intention, faith and baptism, but usually enter nation states by arbitrary historical accident, being born in the region. Geographically, Christianity is transformational and bound by no lines, but all nation states are defined by borders. They don't believe in that. They don't. Yeah, they don't believe that at the Gospel Coalition. I also want to say, uh, no, Christianity, uh, in terms of access, people enter Christianity in large part by being born into Christian families. So got to point that out because statistics, nation states defend their borders by using military might, not America, and building walls. But Christianity breaks down ethnic barriers and crosses borders to welcome to welcome all who repent and believe. Unlike nation states where citizens are largely monocultural, Christianity encourages diversity and multiformity. 
uh, nations, states are interested in their own agendas, but Christians put others before themselves. Nation states see their own shortcomings as not lived up to their ideals and potential, but Christians recognize their shortcomings and stem stem from their corrupt nation. Again, that phrase about nation states isn't true. It actually uh, seems to uh, assent to the our, uh, what's the term? Uh, proposition nation theory, which Christian nationalism rejects the proposition nation. So let's just look at his table. This will save time. Uh, okay. He, he made a table of the same thing he just said, basically. To claim America as a Christian nation confuses categories. If we wrongheaded try to enforce the fusion by force, Jesus explicitly said his kingdom uh, is not of this world. If it were, his servants would fight. This is Peter with the sword, I'm guessing. He did tell him to get a sword. We advocate for the end of abortion, but we don't kill doctors who perform abortions. Well, shouldn't the government? That's the government's job. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not going to say it's a the sin. government's job is to wield a sword, not the church. I'm not going to say it's a sin to necessarily, you know, mob wanted to go out and do that's something. That's what to used claim. to happen. And then they passed but, the FACE Act. And again, that's. Which was right. an anti First Amendment law, an anti biblical law. Uh, we can march in protest, but we don't form mobs of destruction. We work to elect candidates of integrity and conviction, but we don't harass public officials at town halls or school board meetings. Disagree with that. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a slap at. Uh... So we shouldn't be reading what they put in school libraries at uh, public official meetings. And that right there is why the Gospel Coalition is worthless on civic engagement. Yes. When Jesus was arrested, his disciples asked him, shall we strike with a sword? Then Peter struck the high priest's servant and cut off the right ear. But Jesus said, put your sword back in its place for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. No biblical view of the Christian political engagement can include violence as endorsed by the dominion view. What is the dominion view on violence? What's the dominion view here? Like there's an assumption made that January 6th was a violent event since when? Well, because that's the only violence that he's pointed to. Well, what he's basically saying is there's no basis for a Christian to have forcible resistance to the government, i.e. Romans. If the gover government of is, lesser magistrates. Yes. If the government is violating Romans 13, then the Christian has no violent recourse. And then and, the, and that Christians can never rebel against the government. That's well, basically his argument. Has he ever heard of the Black Robe Regiment? Which I believe was Baptist, by the way. Now, again, and just to point to Stephen Wolf's theory, because he has an entire chapter dedicated to the, I guess, what is a just rebellion, and he likens it to divorce, marital divorce, that while divorce is not preferable, there are circumstances where it is justified. And again, you see this in scripture. The 10, ten tribes were justified by God in rebelling against Rehoboam. Uh, and that was over taxes. I want to read, uh, yes. The Bible does justify the rebellion against Rehoboam, but it does also show that the rebellion of Rehoboam was not well-founded or done for good motives um, because they rejected the covenant that God offered them. Uh, that's what Rehoboam or the Jeroboam, Jeroboam yes. did. Uh, I want to read Patrick Schreiner's bio listed here. Uh, Patrick Shiner teaches New Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He is the author of several books, including 
political gospel, the public witness. Uh, I'm not going to read his titles, but do you catch the irony there? He teaches New Testament at Midwestern Seminary. New Testament. So his argument for about Christian nationalism does not include a key New Testament passage, you know, Romans 13. Yeah, which again, if the government is in violation of Romans 13, then it does come to a point where Christians are justified in rebelling or resisting the government, even if it's by force. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of Protestant tradition on that. And uh, if you want to pick and choose your Thomas Jefferson quotes then where you know, he, he, he goes further <laughs> yeah he would say basically rebellion is necessary every generation with so, a lot of patriots let's wrap this up to speak of christian nationalism is to open the door to disagreement we must define what we mean by our terms john wisely is right to say that christian nationalism has often been articulated in ways that pervert christianity's net message but we should work to understand it when we can and when we condemn it we should do so in precise terms by using these categories for understanding christian nationalism by critiquing each one in its own terms we can remain hopeful for change and clarity as we continue the to discuss the relationship of christianity to politics yes yeah, this, this article sucks yeah but you basically just say christians shouldn't even go to their school board meetings and confront their politicians that's harassment or harassment it's basically his argument and again not a whole lot of bible verses that point to his uh, the point of what is the purpose of a christian government like josh bice's article was bad but it at least was trying to engage on a higher level this is just gutter level argumentation here and this guy's a new testament professor and he doesn't realize that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world, meaning from this world, but it's in this world. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus says, in one of his first public messages. I mean, presumably he's, I would the assume. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is here. I would assume he's some form of uh, uh, pre-mail just by his use of the dominion, because that's gen like dominionist views. De generally a dis at post-mail. Yes, it's generally like a derogatory use uh, insult against post-mill people, which, I mean, there is distinctions between dominionist and post-mill because dominionist is generally like your uh, new apostolic reformation types yeah. with, or like a Charlie Kirk maybe I think is might fall into that camp. Yeah. Let's see. I'm not sure if we have enough time to do the... Uh... I mean, that's a, it's a rehash. Virgil Walker is probably a rehash of... Right. Let, let's just uh, let's just read the first paragraph. And I think the first paragraph is actually a non-starter. This article is called The Dangerous Intersection of Christian Nationalism. Uh, we'll read the first paragraph and maybe a key paragraph because he does kind of rehash a lot of the stuff we talked about tonight. The Dangerous Intersection of Nationalism and Ethnocentrism. If if what is meant by Christian nationalism today is a form of active patriotism, which border in which borders are protected national sovereignty is enforced and society moves back towards a judeo-christian ethic call me a christian nationalist what's wrong with this sentence now what's the adjective that stands judeo -Christian? out christian no like christian nationalists reject the idea of using the term judeo-christian there is no judeo-christian it's just christian 
the Old Testament, we believe in the Old Testament more than Jews do. And we have the New Testament. They have the Talmud instead of the New Testament. So our ethics, and this lines up in voting, you, you know, look at the, the uh, voting patterns of white evangelicals versus Jews. It's not We don't have the same values. It's the inverse. Uh, you look at how faithful, like how much the nation state of Israel believes in God. It's, you know, a stark amount of atheism there. But we're going to talk about, you know, Judeo-Christian ethics. And it's like, no, you're not a, like, no, you're, you're trying to, how do you do fellow Christian nationalists here? And it's not working. However, a few studies of the European nationalist movement, fewer, uh, However, few have studied the European nationalist movement. Fewer still understand that leaders of its own of this new movement are giving it a makeover. This improvement is an attempt to rebuild something that was actually broken and required additional inspection. Uh, that's the first paragraph. I mean, in general, trying to compare the European experience to the American experience is just you're going to fall flat early on. But right. Uh, and the Brit and just to even go further, like since we're from the British tradition, like Britain and America, I mean, there's a difference between how the British colonies turned out and versus how the French and the Spanish colonies turned out. Right. I mean, like obviously, the British colony, the former British colonies are very are are remarkably more stable, more, um, I guess Anglo, oh, I guess more Western. When you're looking at like Hong Kong, uh, New Zealand, and Canada, I mean, they're so the worldview that undergirded British colonization and British, like a lot of the British tradition on Christianity that we inherited as a country, is far different than that of German, French, Polish, or any of the other European countries. So, Wolf's statement raises several questions Can nationalism be Christianized? Does Wolf's version of Christian nationalism lack? the ethnic pride of previous attempts at nationalism? Does ethnocentrism comport with Christianity? Does the emphasis on Christianity purge, purge its adherence of their sinful ethic, ethnic divisions through the unity we find in Christ? If Wolf's ambiguous language, i.e. his exchange of the word ethnicity for nation, is any indication, Christian nationalism is no different than from nationalism in its basic form. Wolf writes, I use the term ethnicity and nation almost synonymously, though I use the former to emphasize the particular features that distinguish one people group from another. Nation is used to emphasize the unity of, a whole, of the whole, though no nation, properly speaking, is compo of composed of two or more ethnicities. Emphasis mine. Um I take this as a political statement, not a theological statement. And the the definition of nation is actually closer to ethnicity. The definition of state is more like America is not a nation. We're really more properly a state in political science terms. Well, one thing that's, I mean, the nuance in Wolf's book is he doesn't exclude the possibility of assimilation. The example he gives in the book is a Cajun Asian, so to speak. So basically, what? yes, an Asian man who is Cajun as in, in Louisiana, and he's pretty much born and bred a Cajun Asian. 
So he's assimilated as a, you know, a member of that society in, you know, La Bayou or whatever. Now, and did not the Bible allow for assimilation into the tribe of Israel? So, I think the answer is in the long run, yes. So there is room for assimilation under his worldview and his framework. But again, he would refer, and maybe, and maybe this is the Thomism in him, he would refer back to a lot of Greek philosophers and Roman his, uh, philosophers who basically articulated that affection for one's nation is natural to man. Now, Virgil disagrees with that. Yes, if Wolf's vision proceeds and no nation, properly speaking, is composed of two or more ethnicities, what becomes of the multi-ethnic American experiment? Which ethnic group will be the lone bulwark? That's a reference to a tweet. Uh, to experience a privilege and participation uh, in Wolf's Christian nation. And I just got to say, like, America would be... Like, America is not recognized as an ethnic group, despite the fact that a lot of us are so... Uh, genetically heterozygous or not homogenous but hetero i don't know what the word is but from european ancestry so america would become its own ethnicity and perhaps should be recognized as its own ethnicity in in some part um because you know you look at a lot of latin american countries they're considered ethnic groups but they have you know, look at Argentina. They have a rich history of European immigration in Argentina. Uh, again, Cubans, you know, again, they're considered an ethnic or they're actually considered a race in the U.S. census and all that. But it's like, you know, America has been around longer in some as a nation, as a country. So I just think it's weird. I, I think, you know, given enough time, America would have developed its own distinction ethnic ethnically speaking i mean your thoughts on this i mean i mean it was it, it's just a weird characterization of i guess wolf's argument i mean obviously again there's a lot of things you could quote i mean obviously and he's you know a little long-winded at times but he would say that love of nation and love of people is natural to man this goes back to the argument of do you have more in common with the Nigerian Christian that's suffering persecution under Boko Haram, or do you have more in common with your secular neighbor? And, uh, yeah. You know, a realistic answer is you probably have more in common with your secular neighbor, even though you don't share the same faith. Right. And this next part gets into the whole argument about whether, who do you have more in common with the Christian in Zambia or the, or your not Christian neighbor down the street? And that's the part that he's getting into an argument. And Wolf would say you have more in common with your neighbor down the street than you do with the Christian in Zambia. And it's not in a spiritual sense in terms of final destination, but it's in a temporal stance and, you know, who you are and what are your circumstances. So that's the part that I think uh, he's getting at. And then uh, after that section, uh, he, he writes, Christian nationalism in many ways is a reactionary response to much of the resentment resulting from post-George Floydian culture. CRTI or CRT slash I social justice and wokeism have aligned themselves along ethnic lines, forcing white people to choose between being an ally or being accused of racism. Neither embrace 
of critical race theory or intersectionality nor the Christian nationalist response is helpful to the peaceful coexistence of a multi-ethnic society. So I this mean, is a James Lindsay argument. It's also a third way, is it? It's kind of a third wayism. Oh, there's a third I'm way. There's I'm a, not necessarily in agreement with that, actually. You don't, you don't think he's saying? Well, I mean, obviously, he doesn't posit a third way. But. Well, I think he's using a no because this is the response that's not embracing white power. Like Christian nationalist is replacing, it is making sure that the white supremacist ideal is not actually the prevailing opposition to critical race theory because critical race theory, if you read Robin D'Angelo's book and believe it, the logical response as a white person is to be more racist. Like, why would I give up my power and in institutions? I should be like Colonel Jessup and say, yes, I ordered the code red because it's in my best. It's in the interest of me, my children, my people group. Like that's the, that's the logical response of a white person reading white fragility is to realize that it's, you know, white privilege. It is a privilege to be white. Just like that, uh, that uh, popular YouTube video on how woke and anti or woke and white supremacists are basically the same person. Uh, one believes in white privilege. The other believes it's a privilege to be white. Basically the difference. But Christian nationalism is the response that subverted and overtook the, the white supremacist response. That's why they went from saying white nationalist to Christian nationalist, because we won. Christians pointed to an F they, they pointed to a alternative vision that we can build towards that the whites, the white nationalists or white supremacists really didn't do that. The Republican party isn't doing that. The boomer con neocons aren't doing that, but Christian nationalism is providing the alternative. Uh, is Christian nationalism white wokeism? Another James Lindsay argument here. In 2017, social justice advocates were happy to avoid answering questions about implications of their ideology, asserting that no one could adequate, <coughs> adequately define words, uh, terms, words like critical race theory, wokeism, and social justice were obscured by a cacophony of subjective definitions. Similarly, the flurry of differing ideas and asso associated with Christian nationalism allows many of the ifs if of its proponents to argue again that while they hold Christian nationalism, their definitions differ from the one currently being used, thus, many, thus making criticism moot. Many would contend that the struggle for social justice and the propagation of the Christian nationalism share no similarities. I disagree. Both are responses to feeling the feelings of subjugation and powerlessness. Each seeks a top-down government-facilitated re remedy for their concerns. Both are willing to cede authority to the government for the benefit of their respective peoples. Both parties recognize their constitutional powers, such as First Amendment, must be constrained to advance their cause. Though Christian nationalists and those striving for social justice have different ideas of justice, the common good and the benefit of the societies they would create, they do have a common goal. Both seek to create a utopian vision of a society where people are safe, prosperous, and empowered. I think I want to work backwards from here because he acts like Christian nationalism is this new thing. I think the term is new. But the ideology is not new. This theology is not new. 
And there's a lot, you know, everyone before, you know, modern classical liberalism basically in the church basically believed that the power of the sword should enforce the second table of the law and this varying degrees, the first table of law. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it, this notion of, uh, and this notion that the, like the, I mean, there, I mean, just the notion of the fir- their understanding of the First Amendment versus what the understanding of the First Amendment was when it was written is just entirely disconnected. But how do you, I mean, that's a Herculean task of overcoming that. Well, I also think the Constitution's moot at this point. It's a dead letter. It's, you know, just a piece of paper. It didn't stop. It didn't protect our freedoms the last few years. So all these appeals to the uh, First Amendment and all that is kind of moot to me it doesn't well, and the, it rings and, hollow and let's just be honest the difference between the grievances of the the woke crowd and the grievances of the so-called christian nationalist is he's drawing one, a moral equivalency only one side has legitimate grievances and right the other the side woke. wants to diddle yeah they yeah like these aren't equal grievances they want to have a pagan, uh global homo nationalism in this country or training like, nationalism. They want to introduce their morality. They want to introduce their gods. They want to. They want to basically force their religion on everyone. Uh, yeah. And they want to destroy society in a sense. They want to. We're not. Again, a lot. And of we're not creating a utopian vision of society. We're just going. I think we're just reforming. We want to reform something. And English common law would be what we start at, which America already had. This is not about creating a utopian vision for society. It's about reforming our society back to the Christian principles in our specific context, back to the Christian principles that our society was founded on, the Christian legal system of English common law, and then modernizing it because, you know, modern solutions require or modern problems require modern solutions, as Dave Chappelle famously said. But again, the racial grievances of the critical racers, they're not real. It's just a means to obtain power. They don't actually have legitimate grievances. Yes. The disparities between economic outcomes and criminal outcomes are entirely determined by group subcultural attitudes. Right. And one thing that, you know, the cultural Marxists are right about is this is a a, a win or lose situation. It's a zero sum game. They believe that power is a zero sum game. And you know what? They're pretty much right about that. That is where we're at. That is where we've been at for several years, decades, maybe always have been. But power is a zero sum game. And that's a, you know, the woke believe that, but it's actually true. They're just serving their father, the devil. Uh, While Christian nationalism and social justice share commonalities, CN is not white wokeism. It is, however, a response to wokeness. Many CN proponents have rightly been concerned as they've witnessed legalization of same-sex marriage and the embrace of critical race theory, intersectionality, and the legalization of grooming through Drag Queen Story Hour. Uh, some have grown tired of carrying the weight of the social justice onslaught, and or as Christian as every cultural disparity is blamed on white supremacy and racist racism, many Christian many view Christian nationalism as a muscular response to these issues, like the Giga Chad. Um, however, there's a biblical response to these issues that does not require embracing nationalism, which is really 
his bugaboo. So now we get another thing defining nationalism. Uh, the uh, There are questions that must be asked here. This is a part later. Who defines who is and who is not a false teacher, a heretic, or a blasphemer? Will the Presbyterians decide? Will the Baptists decide? What will be done with Mormons, Catholics, or Muslims in a Christian nation? If we have determined the state religion is a is Christian, how can we others express their faith? Well, in American history, we actually have something called the Mormon Wars, where they drove the Mormons out of New York, they drove the Mormons out of Missouri, and the Mormons had to go off to Utah to practice their weird sex cult. I mean, so. again, I, I do bring this up in my critique of, of Wolf. Um, so I say you have a lot of denominations that didn't exist when the America was formed. Obviously, yes. you have new ideologies and theologies that emerge. Uh, other uh, differences would be a lot of immigrants brought, you know, evangelical free church, for instance, is largely Swedish immigrants who came here and built that church here. So there's a lot of that as well. But, and the other thing I kind of end with is, uh, you know, the question, the, there does uh, remain the question of whether actual heretics would be condemned. And unfortunately, these heretics run the largest churches in America. So that's kind of where I kind of critique Wolf's position is that a lot of these, her I mean, the heretics have a lot of power in the American church. So there are practicality or practical issues with right. implementing this ideology. There are. That's a legitimate grievance. And I point that out in my review. doesn't mean you have to throw out the book, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. But, you know, that is just, you know, something that needs to be discussed is how, how would a society go about implementing this? Though one thing I posit is that if you were enforcing the second table of the law, that would probably clear out a lot of the heretics. Yeah, probably. So, so like the that who's that pastor in South Carolina that just cheats on his wife rampantly, like John Gray, I think is his name, of the other transformation church. Um, in this version, Christian national of Christian nationalism, believing something contrary to the civil magistrate is permissible. However, it will, it, there will be prohibitions from expressing it publicly. Wolf acknowledges that one cannot be compelled to believe, which is to his credit. However, public expression of belief is contrary to Wolf's Christian nation. Once protected by the First Amendment, may now be uh, uh, considered an offense against the souls of God's people and punished as a crime. There we go, equating the First Amendment with the law of God. Oh, can we also point out that God's people are only the elect? So is he referring to everyone and everyone as God's people? Uh, yeah, I don't know. So that's I, a... I think theologically, Virgil Walker would be right on this. Unfortunately, Wolf's version of Christian na of nationalism maintains consistency with a kind of German Volkism, which is peopleism, that paved the way for ethnic German nationalism. While proponents may balk at the comparison, Wolf embraces the idea when he writes, "Blood relations matter for." your ethnicity because your kin have belonged to this people on this land to this nation in this place and so they bind you that people in place creating a common volksgeist which is a i don't know what the geist means in german 
Volks means people. I can see. I can see if I can find the quote. Obviously, uh, I'll I'll keep reading. Uh, Wolf uses similar language of blood and soil, blood and place, when describing his ethnic group as those with a genetic connection and those who have been on the land. You see, nationalism has consistently embraced ethno-nationalism, which favors one group, known to our people, over others. This form of ethno-nationalism can be seen in history as German nationalism has justified its actions against people deemed undesirable or inferior. Like, again, the Germans, like, nationalism wasn't the worst part, or at least Vervanchism was, like, not the worst part about the Nazis. I mean, the worst part was, like, the socialist economy and the, uh, obviously, the ethnogenocide and stuff like that. But the nationalism didn't necessarily lead to that just because because nationalism didn't lead to that in other places where it's been tried. So there's something about the unique German experience. And what is that? Because they were Darwinist. So oh, we remember also, that. also, their Christianity was overtaken by pietism. They didn't have. Yeah. So, I mean, the. And then, of course, obviously, they had a failed government. The Kaiser and their their state, their church was also state ran. So you had a, a lot of different factors. More Catholic. Are, yeah, a lot of different factors that aren't even relevant to America. I mean, so I know when he talks about, like, obviously, the notion of uh, the whole Kinnist chapter. I mean, uh, trying to see. Um, a lot... A lot of when I mean when they call him a kinist, obviously they're I mean they're just gonna call him that. And let's just be honest okay. with ourselves. Interracial relationships do bring with them unique challenges. Okay, Robert points out that Geist is the spirit of the times, like Zeitgeist. Uh uh Protestant Anon says the Nazis were doing the bidding of the Roman Catholic Church. I do think there's a yeah, I think that Adolf Hitler claimed Catholicism at times, but I think that the the SS was pretty much all degenerate. Like, you know, they they were having some gay orgies and stuff and doing occultic practices. Uh, Let's see. Let's just read his conclusion and wrap up. As an Air Force veteran, I have raised my right hand and sworn to protect and defend the United States Constitution. I'm familiar with patriotism and national pride. Despite all of its current faults, America remains a beacon of freedom and hope. Those who of us who have donned a military uniform and voluntarily placed ourselves in harm's way to defend the liberties we enjoy are devoted to enhancing the American experience. I don't see America as a beacon of liberty and uh, of freedom and hope. And I don't think the rest of the world sees America that way either. I mean, our military is a beacon of global homosexuality. Our military recruitment numbers uh, disprove that statement, but it's also the appeal to I served this country. Well, okay. So what? Yeah, that, I mean, that was what yeah i don't like years? the appeal to veteran fallacy and no i yeah i i mean some Which of our is, work let's just be honest john mccain was a veteran he was a piece of crap so let's just you know I stop mean, his putting... his record wasn't actually he was probably the worst navy pilot in you know he was the worst pilot in navy history arguably i mean there are good veterans and bad veterans but i mean it doesn't you don't have a moral badge of honor just because you served sorry it might be offensive to say that but 
And then for the past few years, as CRTI, social justice and wokeism made their way through evangelicalism, I've been committed to pushing back against ra the racist ideology represented by black liberation theologians and Black Lives Matter advocates. Why does he capitalize that? But lowercase is all these other things. I reject the idea that only my hope to win the battles that we face is through some form of Christian nationalism. The weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy ideological strongholds. Current answers notwithstanding, I'll stick with what works. The gospel of Jesus Christ and a well-equipped believer and well-equipped believers living out their faith in the public square. We must not grow weary as we continue to be a prophetic voice to a sinful culture. And again, I would argue that a well that equipping believers living out their faith in the public square entails Christian nationalism. I would argue that there's a connection between the two. I mean, it's kind of a glorified gospel juke at the end. And, you know, yeah, we just got to go out there and preach the gospel. Well, if you read the Gospel Coalition's article, you know, you don't confront your your school board members when they're permitting degeneracy. Uh, Brian Babe says, for the globe world, especially poor countries, America is a beacon of hope. That's why you always have different kinds of nationality. Uh, nationalities moving here. And I think that is true, but you know what nation has the second most, second highest immigration? Russia. So America's number one. I don't know how distant number one and two are, but number two is Russia. But uh, I mean, again, people that immigrate to America are doing it for different reasons because you know, economic opportunities always been number one. Right. And let's be honest, when, you know, a lot of the mass migration that, you know, when they're talking about, oh, we got to have this multi-ethnic society. Well, technically, black people are the third racial group in America. Hispanics overtook them. Oh, are they so, white Hispanics or which is a term they invented for George Floyd? Nobody from Africa is going to Russia. I think that's true, though. I do think that is 100 percent true. <laughs> they're not going to China either. No, they're not going to China or either. Japan. That's true. I don't know what. I don't know where it's coming from. I'm just saying that number two in that is that. So I'm not entirely convinced that immigration, I've never seen a black Russia, Russian, but have you drank one? <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, I, and obviously I guess the UK would be somewhere on there. Now, I do wonder like what, what is the driving forces of immigration? But I'm not entirely convinced that nowadays people see freedom as the driving force. I think at one point that was true, uh, but I don't think that's true right now as much as it is, you know, economic opportunity and stuff like that. I mean, I work with a lot of, you know, I work in IT, so I'll just leave it at that. But economic opportunity is huge. If, you know, you're Indian or Nepali and you know how to work computers, there's a lot of, uh, you know, high paying jobs of that caliber in this country. But so. again, it's a Christian nationalist talking point to say that, you know, the importation of mass amounts of people, which, you know, turned California deep blue, being exported to the rest of America will not make our country more depraved, even if these so-called people have, possess Christian right. beliefs. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I think that shit, I think Christianity should be a vetting point for immigration. But that's Christian nationalism. That is Christian nationalism. So uh, it was certainly a vetting point for admitting states. You know, they had to have Christian laws in place 
and not polygamy. Yeah, that that's that was a biggie, which I know Brian Babes and I have some disagreements on the doctrine of polygamy. So I think that's pretty funny that she's in here. But anyway, I think that's basically all we've got to talk about. I'll have to think about whether I want to split this stream into like multiple videos or something, but we'll, we'll show now nah, probably won't. That's too much work. But anyway, um, it's been fun. I don't think I'm going to do a last call on questions. But otherwise, uh, have a blessed day, and we'll catch you on the next one. Next week, we got Sam Jones joining us, hopefully, on to discuss Christian nationalism as it relates to America's founding versus classical liberalism. So that should be a fun time. Don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe if you are new. Have a blessed day. Again, we'll catch you on the next one. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.